I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 18 from the Complete Jewish Bible. Therefore, brothers, just as you learned from us how you had to live in order to please God, and just as you are living this way now, we urge you, indeed, united with the Lord Yeshua, we urge you to keep doing so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you on the authority of the Lord Yeshua. What God wants is that you be holy, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to manage his sexual impulses in a holy and honorable manner without giving in to lustful desires like the pagans who don't know God. No, no one should wrong his brother in this matter or take advantage of him. Because the Lord punishes all who do such things, as we have explained to you before at length. For God did not call us to live an unclean life, but a holy one. Therefore, whoever rejects this teaching is rejecting not a man, but God, indeed, the one who gives you the Ruach HaKodesh, which is his. Concerning love for the brothers, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do it even more. Also, make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to learn your, to earn your living by your own efforts, just as we told you. Then your daily life will gain the respect of outsiders, and you will not be dependent on anyone. Now, brothers, we want you to know the truth about those who have died. Otherwise, you might become sad the way other people do who have nothing to hope for. For since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, we also believe that in the same way, through Yeshua, God will take with him those who have died. When we say this, we base it on the Lord's own word. We who remain alive when the Lord comes will certainly not take precedence over those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with a call from one of the ruling angels, and with God's shofar. Then those who died, united with the Messiah, will be the first to rise. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. Thank you, Linda. I suspect that a lot of folks do not know who was the author of White Christmas. He was a Russian Jew named Irving Berlin. Uh, not his given name, Izzy Bailint, I think, was the way you pronounce it. He was also, by the way, the author of uh, the Easter Parade. Isn't that interesting? Uh, not what you would expect from a, uh, a nice uh, Russian-Jewish... Uh, well, he wasn't a boy at that point, but yeah. Well, all that to say, I, I know um, this is one of these years where Hanukkah and Christmas seem to uh, coincide and I just wanted to encourage you um, 
if part of your family tradition is celebrating Christmas, that you, you do it as unto the Lord, um, and that you seek for opportunities to do His business in your celebration of <clears throat> whether it is Hanukkah as it will be tomorrow afternoon or Christmas. Um, pray for divine appointments because I know that there are many, many folks for whom the holidays of one kind or another um, are a time of dislocation, a, a time of pain, um, not exactly what you call a Kodak moment or a Hallmark Hall of Fame. And uh, look for God's redemption in these holidays. Amen? Amen. You know, I, I was looking at this passage and um, I was doing one of these things such as, uh, Lord, you've got to be kidding. This a passage uh, for Hanukkah? And um, you know how it is sometimes you wish to wiggle out of the assignments that God puts before you and you learn over a period of time not to do that because Father knows best. And so I, uh, I know this passage is very familiar to many of us, but I want to stop and pray that the Holy Spirit would give us fresh eyes with which to see this passage. So let's pause for a minute. Lord, we praise you for the awesomeness of your word, the awesomeness of your revelation. Lord, how your word comes to us in power and brings about a renewing of our mind and transformation. And we pray, Lord God, that that would indeed be the case for us. Lord God, as we look into this passage and reflect on it, we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us and that while many, many are celebrating your first coming, that we would as well be able to celebrate your coming that is yet to happen. And we pray for that excitement and that joy. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. You may or may not know where the term Maccabees came from. Uh, that was given to Judah, who was the eldest son of the old priest Mathathias. Um, Maccabee comes from a Hebrew word, Makevet, which means sledgehammer. Because Judah was ferocious in battle, in fighting, and as well being a battlefield general. He was very, very brilliant in his strategy. Just want to take a moment to remind remind everybody, refresh your memory a bit about what took place there. Um, 
people typically think of Hanukkah as a battle between the Greeks, the Hellenized Syrians, and, and the Jewish people. It was actually more complex than that. Part of the mix was that there was a very large number of Jewish people who had become assimilated and become Hellenized and embraced the Greek culture and religion. And it, it wasn't just Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, the, the bad guy. By the way, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means uh, Antiochus God manifested in the flesh. People called him Antiochus Epimenes behind his back, which means Antiochus the mad. Uh, not to his face, of course. And, um, and he, for some bizarre reason, felt the need to put the uh, Jewish people into a, into a blender and homogenize Israel so that it became like all the other cultures of that time. Very unusual because the um, Alexander the Great and people under him typically welcomed the expression of other religions. He didn't. And um, he was very cruel. And you know the story about how that the Maccabees rose up and fought him and came to the temple and the temple was defiled and they cleansed it. But what a lot of people don't know is that the Maccabees themselves became very defiled them, uh, over a period of time. Their descendants who were called the Hasmoneans became every bit as corrupt as the people, the Jewish people earlier. Terribly corrupt, terribly cruel, and over a period of time, God saw fit to bring the Romans, the Roman governor, uh, Roman general Pompey, who conquered Israel. And so part of what the rabbis over a period of time wanted to do is make sure that the attention was not drawn to man's conquest and the military might and, and wisdom of Judah, the Maccabees, and those who fought with him, but rather was the Lord. And that's where we get the, uh, the story of the eight days, the um, Maccabees coming to the temple, finding the temple polluted. And by the way, what Antiochus Epiphanes did is you may or may not know that he did the absolute worst possible thing in that he built an altar to Zeus in the temple itself and sacrificed a sow, a female pig on it. So the temple was absolutely defiled. The Maccabees cleansed it. And according to the story, there was only, uh, there was oil to light the menorah that was in the temple at all times, that was lit at all times. There was only a little can. It should have lasted only one day. It lasted eight days. That was the miracle. But the miracle was somehow, folks, the fact that God intervened in the crisis situation for the nation of Israel to protect his people. That's the real story of Hanukkah, folks.
It's not so much about the, the oil lasting eight days. It's a fact that God saw to it that Israel was not going to be overrun by this cruel man who in lots of ways was a symbol of other cruel men who had arisen and wanted to annihilate the nation of Israel. Haman and Pharaoh, more recently, of course, Hitler. But you know, in lots of ways, Judah the Maccabee was typical of the messiahs with small m that rose up to deliver the nation of Israel. You see that a lot in the book of Judges, that the people of Israel were fat and sassy and worshipped false gods and and they angered and they hurt the heart of God and, and the Lord brought their enemies and gave their enemies control over the land and, and the people were oppressed and after 20, 30, 40 years they got it and they said, oh, God, uh, we're having problems here. Would you please help us? And that's you know, typical of human nature. We do everything possible and then we finally get the fact that we maybe need to call on God for help. And the people called on God for help. He brought these deliverers, these judges who delivered the people. But it was a cycle. It was a vicious cycle. You see the same thing with Judah the Maccabee. He comes, he, uh, the Maccabees rally the people to worship God, to cleanse the temple, and then over a period of time, they become corrupt again. Which simply reminds us that to have a bona fide Messiah with a capital M, you need to have someone who would bring answers that would go down deep and would affect us from the inside and out. That, of course, for us who follow Yeshua is our Messiah. And while many people celebrate His birth during this season, I felt led to leapfrog 30 years and talk about His ministry and the fact that, as James mentioned, that Messiah was born to die. You may remember, you may know, that one of the three gifts that was brought to Messiah was myrrh, which was used in, in the burial practices of that time. Very, very symbolic, very profound, telling people, conveying the fact that, that this child who would be born, that his destiny would be to die, of course, to rise again, in order to set people free from their sin. So Hanukkah, as we celebrate Hanukkah, we go beyond the Maccabees to the greatest liberator, the, the greatest Messiah, the, the greatest Savior who sets us free. And Yeshua told us, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, do you ever wonder exactly what that freedom is all about? Free from what? What does it mean to be free? In this passage, part of the freedom that is laid out for people is freedom from hopelessness. And, and you see that these folks were struggling with hopelessness. 
verse 13, Paul tells him, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who are asleep so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Hope is a huge factor that determines where we are in life. When you think about it, there was a uh, Jewish psychiatrist by the name of Bruno Bettelheim who went through Auschwitz and endured the horrors of the Holocaust. And after he was released, he, took a study, he undertook a study of the impact of hope on people, particularly survivors. And what he found was that survivors tended to be people who had hope in a face of extreme suffering. Those are the ones who survived. Those who yielded to hopelessness and despair were likely to die, to perish. So it's not easy to maintain hope in difficult circumstances. And you may know or not know that the Thessalonian believers were people who were in, they were pressed on a very difficult situation. We know if you read in Acts chapter 17 how this congregation came about, you know that there was a f- the fire of persecution was there from the get-go. Paul comes, he preaches in the synagogue. Some Jewish people in the synagogue are enthused, and then there were a bunch of Greeks who were attached to the synagogue, the so-called God-fearers, and a ton of them received the message gladly, were embraced it, were delighted, and then word got out to others in the Jewish community. They got furious. And their attitude is, we need to get rid of this, of this rabble-rouser because he is usurping our place in the community. It's a power, power shtick. And so they got together, they raised a mob. Paul ended up being chased to the next town called Berea. And he was very successful there in, in proclaiming the good news of Yeshua. People heard and they were just absolutely delighted. They were people who were solid kind of folks who were not flighty. They heard the message. They went to their scrolls, the scrolls of the Torah and the prophets. They checked it out and they found, you know, this guy Paul is on the money. A lot of them came to accept Yeshua and the folks in Thessalonica sent a posse to go after Paul to kill him and Paul had to skedaddle out of there as well and that's the how that particular congregation was birthed under extreme pressure in fact as you read the beginning of this letter you see that Paul was very concerned about them He wondered what was going to happen to them. Were were they going to hang in there? Or were they they going to wither and, and fold under the pressure of the persecution? And he is absolutely delighted to know that, yes, they're hanging in there, but, there's always the but, um, there, there are, 
needing to be nudged, to be pushed, and to have someone saying to them, this is the way, folks, not this way, not that way. This is the way. And part of the issue is, back then as it is today, is the question of, of the future. What's going to happen? And, and I, I'm somewhat intrigued that in this mega scientific day where you know we send people to the space station and um, we have the te technological revolution. By the way, I, I'm just, I feel like I'm somewhat part of the uh, Stone Age when I talk to my grandson who, who sits and tells me all about how he gets on the internet and Googles and finds things and I'm just, he is eight years old. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but uh, this is part of the re scientific revolution, the technological revolution, the melding of, of uh, digital information from, um, from computers to um, sound technology and so on. And yet, you go to the supermarket and you see the horoscope. You read it in the paper, you see columns that are focused on the future. Why? Because of people's insecurity. You know, we want to know what's going to happen. We want to know what's going to happen. How it's going to be affecting us. And you find that these kinds of issues were high on the, on the agenda for these Thessalonian believers. In fact, as you read these two letters, um, you find that a lot of what Paul has to talk about has to do with what's going to happen at the end. The end times, will Messiah come? Will he not come? When? What will it look like? How will it affect them? Part of the story here is that many of them had loved ones who died and part of their question is, what's going to happen to our loved ones? Are they going to be forgotten? Or are they going to be part of the larger picture of redemption? Is there hope for us? And Paul says, yes, there is hope. Yes, on one hand, it's always a Jewish thing, on one hand, on the other hand. On one hand, yes, you grieve. It's appropriate to grieve. That's part of the healing process when you lose somebody. You know, I, I've been to funerals of believers, and it sounds like it's a going-away party. And it just doesn't quite fit, you know what I'm saying? Grieving is appropriate, but Paul is saying you grieve with hope. And on the other side, I've been to Jewish funerals that have absolutely no hope. And it is heartbreaking because the funeral liturgy itself talks about the resurrection. And it's never mentioned. And this is apparently something that was a problem from Jewish people way back. And for Gentiles. Archaeologists uncovered all kinds of funeral stone, uh, gravestones that talked about the horror of death and the finality of death. In other words, you die, there's absolutely nothing beyond it. 
And it wasn't a whole lot better on the Jewish side. In the first century, there was a leading rabbi by the name of Yochanan ben Zakkai, a very famous guy. And on his deathbed, he is weeping. And his disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, what's going on? How come you're weeping? And he says to them, I'm being led before the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. There are two ways ahead of me. The one leads to Gan Eden, paradise, and the other to Gehenom, hell. And I do not know which one will take me. How can I do anything but weep? It's sad, isn't it? And the truth is, you know, the older you get, the more you're confronted with your own mortality, with the mortality of, of loved ones, family members. And we've had a number of deaths in our larger mishpacha, larger congregational family. And Paul's objective here, folks, is not to lay out some kind of a... Um, end time prophetic chart you know for all the folks who love this sort of thing who want to be able to connect the dots and arrows etc etc it's really not what this is about folks it's practical knowing and understanding what God has for us in the future is practical because it's designed to drive us to live a way that is appropriate today because if you have no hope, your attitude is, well, I'll do whatever. doesn't really make a difference. If you, on the other hand, have a clear sense of the hope that God's put before you, then you'll pursue it. You'll press forward in that direction. That's what Yeshua tells us. And Paul wants these folks to get it. And by the way, these letters were typically read publicly so it wasn't just a letter written to one person it was read publicly in a congregation and since Thessalonica was a large city it was the capital of that province Macedonia it was a huge city for that day 200,000 people in Thessalonica it was a, a trading capital and it was connected to the um, I-25 and I-70 of those days. And of course, it was not far from the sea. Paul wanted this to go viral, you know, to, to have this spread out. Because he wanted people to know that there is hope for us. There is hope for our loved ones. so that we would be driven to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And I don't know if you, if you get, as, as Linda was reading this, how much emphasis there is on practical living for God. And yes, there are some discussion here about the Lord's return. It speaks about the fact that we will be zapped, we will be beamed to meet the Lord. And we will hang out with him. Which is the plan. 
we are beginning to have a little taste, a little hors d'oeuvres here on the earth as we're beginning to learn to hang out with God here. But it's going to be fuller reality when we see the Lord. And he simply says, look, the shofar will blow. The shofar was, by the way, used, one of the reasons was to summon people to gather. The shofar will blow, and it will be God's message saying to those who are alive and those who are being zapped, okay, come on, join up with me. And yes, all of this has to be integrated with the rest of, of Scripture that talks about the end times and Revelation and, and uh, Zechariah and so on and so forth. But here, Paul is interested, folks, simply in encouraging them. Because you don't have hope, you have no encouragement. And by the way, they were not the only ones who struggled with that. You have the same thing with the Corinthians. Paul is, is laying out before them a, a vision of what's going to happen, not so that they can sit down and, and, and connect the dots and be able to say, okay, I got it. You know, I, I, I've just made myself a little chart here. He wants people to be fired up. We will not all sleep. We will be changed in a flash and a twinkling of, a, of an eye in the last shofar for the... Shofar will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. When the perishable has been clothed, the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will, that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. What this is about, folks, is God's ultimate plan for you and I to be with Him, hang out with Him, to be in His presence eternally. You know, it's not, it's not to drift on, on clouds and, and, and pluck our guitars, although some of our musical folks will do that, perhaps. But uh, what started in the garden where... Adam and Eve walked with God or God walked with them has to be com completed and concluded. You see that at the end of Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will tabernacle with them. So what Paul's saying to them is, look, folks, you have grounds for hope. And yes, you're going through difficult times. You're struggling because of the, the press of opposition. But folks, remember that the kingdom of God advances in the face of opposition, always has been, always will be. And let me just put in a, a little aside here for just a quick moment. Uh, we in this country really, really do not know what persecution is about. You know, we talk about how that uh, the secular establishment 
is getting Christmas and Hanukkah out of our life and so on and so forth. Folks, um, if we were to be transported into a country where believers are truly persecuted, you will have a sense of proportion in understanding what persecution is really all about. But regardless, we, we all deal with struggles. We all deal with difficulties. God did not say, you know, the moment you sign on a dotted line, you become mine. I'm going to put a bubble around you so that nothing comes and, and nothing bites you. Well, uh, it's not reality. Absolutely not reality. Every single one of us experiences that in one form or another. And we can give in to that and lose hope or we can get the fact that somehow what we see now is not the end-all be-all but that all of it has to be filtered through the fact that God is currently in control, that He is in charge of, of our reality. Whether we see it, understand it, grasp it or not, God is in charge of our reality. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And that he's at, he's at work. He's doing things. And let, let me just encourage you, if you are listening to me, and if what I'm saying sounds like I'm speaking some Chinese dialect, you have no clue what I'm talking about, Ask God to open your eyes and show you what He is doing. And He's able. He's able. He wired you. He knows what makes you tick. God is at work now. He's in charge now. He is working now. And all of that is moving towards a larger picture when He will set things in order and the power of sin, the power of the evil one will be abolished and we will hang out together with God without interruption. You know, sometimes you feel like the telephone rings and uh, you're not sure if it's God, if it's what you ate last night, if it's the voice of Satan, if it's somebody else talking to you. Every so often I come across folks who are convinced that everything that they hear and discern in the Spirit is right on from God. These folks scare me. But Paul is saying to them, look, here is what's coming. Yeshua is coming. And your life should reflect that. Again, as you see that, you notice the fact that, that he's pressing these guys. And again, you have this on one hand, on the other hand. On one hand, he says to them, um, I've heard good things about you. It, it, it blesses my father's heart, since I'm your spiritual daddy, to know that you are seeking to follow God. But let me nudge you to press on further 
because you're still relatively young. And that's what he says to them. Finally, brethren, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So on one hand, yes, you are living lives that are pleasing to God. But on the other hand, let me encourage you to do, to do a ton of it, a whole lot more of it, and to grow into relationship maturity with God. That's in verse 1. Verse 10, he says the same thing. In fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And by the way, the word for loving the brothers is Philadelphia. Yet, we encourage you brothers to do more and more. Why? It's a simple reality, folks. Our lives as believers are not static. We either move forward or we slide backwards. There's no such thing as standing in one place. There's always motion. There's always motion. And I want to encourage you the same way Paul is encouraging us that a year from now we will be further along in our relationship with God than we are today. Growing to maturity in Him bearing the kind of good fruit, seeing transformation in our hearts and minds, first of all, things begin from the inside and out, and as God gets a hold of us, then it brings about visible fruit. Do you have that hope and that desire? That in a year or two years or three years, you will be in a different place, a healthier place, a stronger place, a more productive place as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. That you will be able to say, God took me quite a distance during these past year or two or three. And that's what he's saying to them. I, I, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you that you will grow abundantly more and more. So that's kind of the, the larger picture. He talks to them about, about the need to have a strong sense of hope in the presence and reality and, and the coming of the Lord. And then he talks about specifics. I want to instruct you, to urge you that you live lives that are pleasing to God, that are sanctified. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, if, when you look at that, perhaps your tendency is to say, what's up with that? Why all this emphasis on uh, avoid sexual immorality? Well, there's a reason for it, folks. There's a reason for it. Um, it was a huge problem in the beginning uh, when Israel first came into the land. That's why you find chapters upon chapters in Leviticus saying, this is what you should not be doing. Leviticus 18 to 20 talks about all the things that define what is sexual, sexual immorality. 
boggles my mind sometimes when people ask, does the Bible say that it's not okay to fornicate? Um, Leviticus also talks about cleanness. And you might wonder why it talks about ritual defilement in, to our so-called modern way of thinking doesn't make a particle of sense. Why all this emphasis on, on ritual cleanness? Simply as a way of getting a hold of us. Remember that repetition is a major way by which we learn. And when you read something over and over again, it's designed to get, to get your attention. So you sit up and say, oh, okay, I get it. God wants me to be pure. Not just ritually, but also morally. And that's why you find so much emphasis on this in this area. Also when you come into the new covenant. Why? For the same reason as it was needed back in the days of the Canaanites. The same reason as it is needed today. You know, people snicker at believers because they consider us to be prudish. You know, they, they talk about the times when Hollywood portrayed married couples sleeping in separate twin beds. And we've gone a long spell from that. Why there, is there so much discussion about these issues in Scripture? Simply because... Sexual immorality is poster child for many other forms of defilement. It's not, it's not about the sexual immorality. It's what leads up to it. Yeshua taught a great deal about that. That our sin, the, our sins that we commit, our actions begin in the heart long before we Take the action, folks. And as God gets a hold of our hearts, what comes forth will be clean living. And by the way, Paul is not interested in a weed-be-gone kind of an approach. One of my favorite uh, friends actually leads uh, Greenwood Community Church, refers to this as the weed be gone versus the miracle grow approach. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we look for the weeds in our life, you know, to pluck them out and, and zap them with weed be gone, thinking that as we systematically go after all these weeds, we will be in good shape. Well, the problem with that is that weeds sometimes have a tendency to grow back. You know, I, I have a garden in the back of our house and I've been frustrated no end with bindweed. You know, you, you, uh, the only thing I haven't done is brought a herd of goats to take care of it. That's the weed be gone. You know, it's, it's the looking for 
looking for sins and trying to, to fix them versus the miracle grow where you cultivate holiness, folks. When you learn to hang out with God, you realize how unbelievably holy He is. And what is the natural inclination or the supernatural inclination when you hang out with God is you say, wow, Lord, you're holy. You're undefiled. You're pure. And I want to hang out with you, which means that I want to be more like you. Scripture tells us to embrace that kind of an attitude. Be holy as God, as your God is holy. Pursue holiness out of a heart of love for the Lord. Make a choice to walk in the light, in God's light, which will expose things that in your life naturally that are not pleasing to Him. But God will do it gently and lovingly and tap you on the shoulder and say, my son, my daughter, this is not kosher. And because you love Him, your natural response should be to say, forgive me, cleanse me, and give me a heart that pursues holiness. The Lord wants to give us freedom. We talked about freedom from hopelessness. The Lord wants to give us freedom from moral pollution. Freedom to become pure. Then he talks about the need to love one another. Verse 9, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you for you yourself have been taught by God to love each other. It's instinctive that when you come into the kingdom of God, you get to know the Lord. He gives you love for people. If you don't have love for people, ask God to give you love for people. Philadelphia, loving each other. Not something that we see in the world because much of what we see in the world is an attitude of how do I put you down so that I rise up? And yes, he says, I see that you have love for your fellow brothers and sisters. I want to push you towards more. Freedom for selfishness, from selfishness, and freedom to love. And final thought that Paul addresses here is the need to live sensibly. Part of what happens when people talk about the Lord's coming is, is they get goofy. You know, in, in the year, we think that this is a relatively new phenomenon, you know, that people climb up on the roofs and, and just sit there and wait for uh, God's spaceship to come and zap them and beam them up. This is not a new phenomenon, folks. In the year 175, in other words, about 140 years after Yeshua, there was a group of people called the Montanists 
who basically taught about the 175 reasons why the Lord should return in the year 175. And people, you know, because of our insecurity, we try to figure out when is the Lord coming? Is He coming on Rosh Hashanah? Is He coming on Sukkot? Is He coming in 10 years? Is He coming in a generation? And we engage in foolishness. And Yeshua says, no man knows the hour. I don't know, folks. That seems pretty, pretty self-evident. No man knows the hour. That includes me. It includes you. None of us know when the Lord is coming. And Paul is telling the folks who are prophecy nuts, as it were, make it your business to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you. Still have, has a problem in the second letter. He says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now folks, this is not hard-heartedness here. He's not being cruel to the poor. What he's saying is, if you're convinced that it's okay for you to sit on the roof and do nothing, um, your business, but you're not going to have a bunch of people coming, delivering food to you. Live sensibly. Take care of what God has put before you. Don't go looking for things here, there, and everywhere. The Lord said to Moses, when he first called, called Moses into action, Moses, what is it that you have in your hand? Moses said, well, it's a shepherd's stick. And the Lord said to him, throw it on the ground. It became a snake and devoured the other staves of the magicians and so on and so forth. It was this, this, the staff that God used in the performing of all the miracles. And this is part of the picture, folks, as God says to us, what is it that's in your hand? What gifts, what talents, what resources has God given you? Invest those in the expansion of the kingdom. Sensibly, with wisdom that God gives you. So that your daily life will, will win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent upon anybody. What the Lord is simply, what the Lord through Paul is simply saying is yes, here is the last page in the book. Here's what's going to happen. Don't get goofy and, and try to figure out how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Do what God has put before you and live sensibly. Live urgently because He's given you hope, strong hope, not wishful thinking, strong hope live appropriately in, in how you express your passions. Passions, by the way, are from God. God is the one who gives us passions of one kind or another. 
live appropriately and then live wisely. That what God has given you will be well invested. And that his kingdom will expand and that you and I will receive the blessing. The Lord is coming. Lord God, we thank you for the hope and the assurance that you indeed are coming. We thank you, Lord, that just as you came in fulfillment of prophecy, all that had been predicted, Lord God, we trust you that you will come and establish your throne here, Lord. Also in fulfillment of your prophecy. We pray, Lord God, for each one of us, Lord. You know where where on the spectrum of these issues we are. And Lord God, we simply pray that as we stand before you, Lord, and as we worship you, we pray that your Ruach will heighten and highlight those parts of this message, Lord, this part of your word that we need to take and embrace. Would you please stand? And let's just be quiet for a moment or so before the musicians come. You know, it's difficult with the busyness and the goofiness of life sometimes to see the Lord. If you have not been in tune with that reality, let me encourage you today to simply say, Lord, open my eyes, open my eyes, Lord God, that I may see you, that I may follow you, that I may honor you with a way I live my life, with the passion with which I serve you. Restore to me, Lord, all that is needed in order for that to take place. Speak to us, Lord God. Challenge us. Give us the measure of faith, Lord, to embrace your word as it's coming to us, Lord. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.